Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. So we are recording this a, a few days before Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's let's talk about Halloween. What's, what okay. do, you, do you like Halloween? Do you Halloween? Do you trick or treat since you have a, a small child at home? What's your, yes. what's your history and feelings of Halloween? Oh, okay. I love Halloween. Oh, um, all right. Yeah. I, I'm like, I'm re-in love with it with a little kid, obviously. Okay. And she's five and we have like a neighborhood gang oh. that we go trick or treating with. Oh. Yeah, and last year That's was the so first awesome. year. Yeah, that they were all, all old enough to go trick or treating like after dark. Ooh. Which was a brand new spooky experience with a bunch of four year olds. So oh, oh my gosh. Super do, fun. Do you dress like do you do you all dress up as well when you go out with the kids? I wanna say no, but I'm not I'm not closed off to it. When Olivia was a baby baby, my mom made her a costume. She was a slice of pizza. <laughs> it was really cute. I'll have to send you a picture. But so um, Brian and I dressed up as Mario and Luigi. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that like to like try to give some content. We Pizza was her favorite food at the time. That was oh, the reason. I mean, it's still but, my favorite food. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't like pizza? But yeah. anyway, so that I think we didn't we didn't do it last year or anything like that. Um, and don't have plans to do it this year. This year, Olivia is going to be a mermaid riding a seahorse. So she has like a big stuffed seahorse how that she's that, riding. I don't has what, but it how just goes you, over her head. I know, but the mer, where's the which, does where's the mermaid tail go? Does it just go to oh, one side? It's just like, yeah, it just goes I to see. one side. Like she's riding the like side saddle, side saddle, and then just okay. ignore her legs sticking out the bottom. <laughs> just ignore that. That's there. just just completely yeah. ignore that. Do you like Halloween? I do. You know, I do. And every year, I I. I think that I'm going to get more into it from a uh, decoration perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I like I like Halloween-themed movies. I'm not necessarily a horror person, but there's something... Mm-hmm. I like follow a lot, all of that jazz. Our neighborhood, actually, out here in, um, in Virginia is the... I think we get the second most <gasps> trick-or-treaters in Arlington County, which really? is saying something. Yeah, we went through... I don't know. We had a a rough estimate last year of three to four hundred kids over the course no. of three to four hours. Seriously, we get zero. Oh my gosh, our street is wild. Though the flip side of that is that it's really fun because we um we have a projector and so we'll put up movies on the side of our house. We'll oh. do like um hocus pocus and stuff like that. And we actually our uh, former colleague Nancy, we're going to talk about in a second. Her and her partner come over because they're our neighbors, and we just we do a fire and we hand out candy all night. Uh, so it's a little bit of a, a different vibe than actually going trick or treating, but yeah. it's still uh, it's still a lot of fun. That's um, so fun, and that must be why it sounds like the neighborhood is really fun. So that's why yeah, you probably get more and more trick or treaters. Right, we've been there for only uh, a few years. I don't know what the chicken or the egg was, but it's mm-hmm. it's a fantastic time. Um cool. and so we are we are talking about these things because right. like I mentioned it's it's close to Halloween mm-hmm. and actually uh when this airs, so today when this comes out and tomorrow on Halloween proper, we actually mm-hmm. have a special treat for all of our listeners. Uh we're bringing back a couple episodes we did uh, about monsters and legend and actually their connection to science as well as 
the voice of my old co-host, Nancy. Nancy! <laughs> Which is... <laughs> I have to do that every time somebody says Nancy. Oh, we love Nancy, Nancy so much. But yes, yes the, I love the, Nancy. if you are new to the podcast, uh, the voice you're going to hear is very different from Vicky's uh, in, in very lovely ways. Uh, so yeah, and, and the funny thing is, I was talking to one of our colleagues about the title for this episode and the next one, and things like uh, like Return of the Co-host or Co-host from the Black Lagoon. Yes, um, those got nixed. So, Why? No, <laughs> they don't actually tell you anything about the episode. Uh, but anyways, uh, with that, we we hope you all enjoy, and then come back tomorrow for the second part in the series. Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So our our episode, I guess, corresponds with Halloween, let's say. But we've had this idea at the podcast for a while about talking to folks who study things that have roots in kind of myth and legend. Like these creatures that have inspired things like mermaids or Bigfoot. And I feel like a lot of times these legends, they don't just pop up out of nowhere, right? They have to have something that inspires them. And in many cases, there's kind of these prehistoric reasons why folks thought of these things, why folks created these legends. And so we figured since it's Halloween season, we put out a couple episodes where we interviewed a handful of scientists to talk about these linkages between science and monsters. So we have two interviews for this episode, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the first comes from a researcher who knows a little something about mermaids. How do you pronounce your name? Cristina. And your last name? Brito. Brito. Okay. I didn't know if it was Brito or Brito. You should do the R's as I do in Portuguese. Cristina Brito. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I I am uh, I am very American with my speech, so I just want to make sure I get the vowel sounds right. Don't worry. No worries. Okay, so um, I'm a researcher on uh, mostly early modern marine environmental history. Uh, currently, I'm the director of SHEM, which is the Center uh, for the Humanities of Nova University in Lisbon. Um, but my background, in fact, is in marine biology. So earlier in my career, I was working on field uh, with uh, ecology, behavior, conservation of whales and dolphins. And then I flipped uh, into history, so history of marine environment, as well as the history of marine animals and, you know, the history of relationships of people with the ocean and the animals. What inspired your shift from doing more of the hard science, uh, fieldwork type stuff into more of the... Like, what you said from the looking at things from the more historical aspect of things. There was a, a shifting moment. I was doing field work in São Tomé, which is an archipelago in the Gulf of Guinea, West Africa, and we were doing field work, going out to the sea to uh, spot whales, record sounds. Uh, that was that is the breeding ground for humpback whales, and I do get terribly seasick. <laughs> so yeah, so one of the days I stayed. Um, I stayed home and I went to into a library, so an archive, an historical archive, just by chance, and pick up some books and start reading them. And they were full of animals, descriptions of large whales, large animals, 
um, that people thought they were strange, they were different, they were scared. And so that was it. And then I changed completely my path <laughs> from one, from biology into history. <laughs> yeah. And it was probably, it's probably helpful now that you don't have to go out on ships because that's not necessarily yeah. a great thing when you get seasick pretty easily. So I know we're going to talk about the linkage between mermaids and manatees. So mm -hmm. how did she get interested in this question? The first thing was that uh, when I start doing early modern history of natural history uh, and coming back from reading classical antiquity and many uh, bestiaries or natural history treaties in medieval times in Europe, mermaids or other beings, hybrid beings from the water or from the aquatic bodies are uh, are present a lot many times. They are, they are described as these creatures that come out of the water and people do have a reaction to them, either positive or negative. And then I thought, well, most of, um, of our myths that are related to nature, they come from a sighting of something in nature, an observation. Mm -hmm. And when we are dealing with marine animals that are harder to spot and to, to see and to comprehend in the marine environment in comparison uh, with, for instance, uh, birds or, or terrestrial mammals, People do tend to add to their own observations features that they have in their minds, in their own uh, perception of the world, in their worldviews. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, so people thought there, that there were mermaids because they weren't sure of what they were seeing. And from the moment on, they realized that there are these animals that may look like a mermaid, that, do, that a, a shift would occur into the perception of what the mermaid is from a mythological being into a real animal. Mm -hmm. So this was my starting question. And the fact is that that's not the case. So, yeah, so mermaids are always side by side, either with seals, sea lions, manatees, sometimes whales. Uh, and, and sometimes they are presented as real animals at the same time as you described, for instance, manatees. That's interesting. So it's actually... It's actually the reverse for a lot of creatures out there. So manatees were actually, at least in name and comparison, were influenced by the mythological creatures of mermaids. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So how far back, so for mermaids, how far back are we talking? Like when is the first kind of mention or mentions of mermaids, sirens, whatever it might be in history? Way back to the beginning of human history, yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, there are there are um, gods for ancient Mesopotamia, for instance, that we can relate them to the figure for what would become uh, the Greek or the Roman mermaid, for instance. And we can somehow follow the path of understanding of these gods of the water. Uh, so gods that were that were hybrids, half human, half animal of the sea. So and mermaids are present across time and across societies. Every time there's this connection of people with the water, this relationship, there's mm -hmm. a, not always mermaid per se, as we could imagine them today, but this hybrid figure of a, a, a god, a semi-god, a mythological being that relates to the water and is represented partially by an animal. For instance, in the Renaissance Natural History uh, Encyclopedia, Naturalists might describe side by side uh, real animals, real manatees or dugongs, and then have another entry for mermaids. And this could be 
one of two situations, either because they believed that they existed in a similar way, so they were equivalent to one another, or it might be that even though they knew that sirens weren't real, they wanted to keep it there so that the readers would um, be fascinated by these tropical, exotic, distant and strange animals, out, animals, creatures out there. And uh, just another example, for instance, in West Africa, uh, where manatees, where they, the West African manatee, even though being endangered today, do occur, you see a kind of um, disconnection in between the understanding of the animal as a resource that used to be hunted and used for their meat, for their bones, for you know, for the fat, and the symbolic uh, animal, so like a deity that still exists today, mm-hmm. uh, Mami Wata, which is an Africa with an African origin deity, a deity of the waters, and that's still there. So in some cultures, they are present at the same time, but they are different entities. Something is like a fish from the ocean that we can uh, use as food. And the other is our deity that we venerate for many different reasons. I was wondering if there were folks out there who were trying to show mermaids exist in a scientific way, like the folks on, I don't know, Discovery Channel or something like that. Are there people saying, well, there's fossils out there or bones uh, out there that might show that mermaids actually do exist now? Not so much these days. That was that was really a thing until at least middle 20th century. And there, there are several, at least European uh, zoologists on, on naturalists that were trying to prove that uh, mermaids existed, existed back then. And uh, across time and in different places, both in Europe, in Japan and other areas, uh, people tend to put together these... Um, siren puppets so it's to, to prove that they were real so they would take the head of a monkey the body of an aquatic animal the legs and they would just uh, put them all together and create an animal that's not real but that would be there uh in in exhibition for people to go and see uh, that okay. is until kind of the late 19th century uh, but for instance in, in the u.s there was this how do they call it, mockumentary, I think, so oh, not a true sure. documentary, mm-hmm. uh, that is entitled The Body Found, and it's something about these mermaids, these um, aquatic humanoids. It has a couple of years, it was from 2016, something like that. Mm-hmm. It came out, and Noah had to release a statement stating that mermaids are not real, because the, the, the documentary, which is not, well, it's just putting together, uh, you know, loose pieces of information in one place, um, mm-hmm. uh, made people believe once again that mermaids were, were a possibility, a true possibility. Yeah, actually, so I, I just looked it up and looking at the art for it, I remember this, it was 2011. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, because it was on it was on the Discovery Channel, which is quite... Yeah. It's not, people understand now that Discovery doesn't really do science yeah, and anymore. Yeah, people saw it but... as a real thing, as a really documentary, and that they were, you know, taking the lead on that. I don't recall this show. Um, sorry. I, I actually, so I, like I said, I had to look it up uh, while we were talking, and I do kind of remember it, but the only kind of mermaids I can think of now is, I was going to say, 
Harry Potter. Like, of course, you know Nancy, but you don't really like Harry Potter, do you? No, I just never read it. So sure. <laughs> great. Harry Potter. <laughs> right. Well, so in addition to kind of the, let's say, mermaid truthers, I was fascinated by um, how maritime folks, let's say, saw mermaids as signs of maybe good omens or bad omens. Why are mermaids seen in some cases as a good luck charm and in some cases seen as a bad thing that would yeah. lure fishermen in and uh, kill them or whatever? Yeah, uh, th- yeah, that's true. And they have these both these both sides are, are always present. Uh, but I think they do represent much of what the open ocean represents to people, which is at the same time a place of wonder and discovery and good fortune. Something can come out of it as good, but at the same time, it's a place of danger and of unknown and of the great depths and the darkness and so on. And so I think this double view, the double aspect that the ocean has to it in terms of attraction to people, how people see the ocean as good and as bad, as light and dark, is also reflected in the mermaid very well. So the mermaid does encompass all the ways that people can see and perceive the ocean. And you can see at the same time. So you have mermaids that... So there are several mermaids, sirens, selkies, and mm-hmm. so on, well, uh, across different cultures. And one of these creatures can be all good and represents all the good, and then you can have another one that represents the bad. But then you have some, and there's really no expla- no reason for that, that in the same uh, creature, in the same um, mythic being, the good and the bad is there. So if you do good things, if your behavior is good, you will get all the good parts of being in touch with the mermaid. But uh, if you do something that's not good, it's, uh, you can get the other part. So it just relates a bit with the, the duality, both of humanity, <laughs> who we are, and how humans see themselves reflected on the ocean. I wanted to know, like, of course, we were talking to her about mermaids and manatees, so I was personally interested. But do people out there in kind of popular culture still care about and are still fascinated by mermaids? People still are very interested in them. And the fact that is that uh, both myself and other colleagues in my research group, we do a lot of research on animals, mm-hmm. real animals, <laughs> but also on sea monsters. And that's what people will recall the most the mermaids, the sea monsters, uh, and everything, and they try to find an explanation for that. And our viewpoint is just going both to the, you know, the natural sciences, what biology and ecology and uh, environmental knowledge tell us about the animal populations, where they were in the past, how abundant were they, how were their behaviors uh, similar to present day, alongside with the historical sources, and we'll find this in written letters, in natural treaties, uh, in several documents. And they are, we have many, many accounts of uh, mermaids and sea monsters in maps um, mm-hmm. and drawings and representations, in sculptures, in poetry. So they are everywhere. It, it does show us that people were very uh, eager to know more of what this uh, being was. And today we can have this double, um, this integrated view and kind of understanding both the cultural aspects sure. of a mermaid, which is a symbol, 
um, which is a deity even today. So it's present still in some cultures as a religious symbol uh, in Africa, in Brazil, for instance, in other parts of the world. Uh, but the animal is the, the only thing that still remains. So there are no extant evidence whatsoever mm -hmm. of a mermaid and what people would think a mermaid was. So we are relying on written accounts mostly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the source of our research. Um, and, and I think that's still a topic that will come to, to be addressed in many different ways. Uh, the fact that the mermaids are hybrid or, or uh, dual in many mm -hmm. aspects does relate to many aspects of how today we uh, face society and some societal issues uh, of groups of people that are somehow not understood. Uh, mm -hmm. And mermaids can be used, you know, as a framework of thinking all of this. Um, yeah, so I think that's still a long way with mermaids ahead of us. <laughs> I have to say, when I first reached out to Christina, I didn't quite understand the direction of things, meaning that what's unique, I think, about mermaids is that the myth of mermaids has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and was probably inspired by fish and sharks and different things. But when they got to the New World, they actually, like, folks actually thought that manatees were mermaids usually it goes in the opposite direction i think when you have someone who knows something about say prehistoric creatures inspiring the myth or the legend right and i think you also talked to someone who can tell us a little bit about something along those lines my name is Ryan Haupt. I'm a vertebrate paleontologist. I'm at the very tail end of my PhD at the uh, University of Wyoming. Depending on when this episode comes out, it might already be done, which would be awesome. And uh, I'm spending the year as the science policy fellow for the Geological Society of America, and that is also coming to an end. So I'm a soon-to-be on-the-market vertebrate paleontologist. So I usually self-identify as a paleoecologist. So I study the and I, I sometimes will put paleo in parentheses because I actually kind of do modern ecology too. And so I sort of study the connection between modern ecosystems and past ecosystems. And uh, the taxa I focus on specifically is sloths. Uh, I don't only study sloths, but that's sort of the main thing that I focus on. And the, the aspect of their ecology that I'm the most interested in is diet. So I really try to figure out what the life of a sloth was like based on their diet. And I use a variety of techniques, uh, principally stable isotope analysis and dental microwear texture analysis to sort of unlock the secrets of what sloths were eating today and in the past. So I, I can't believe I've never actually asked you this. Uh, do you, did you do field work, like actually interacting with sloths? Yeah, I've done both um, field work at different fossil sites looking for fossils, and I've done field work with um, wild and captive sloths. Interesting. And so you were saying uh, kind of how you're dating them. So the historic stuff or prehistoric i guess um are you the the isotope things like that's just your dating teeth essentially you are um so the stable isotope stuff it's it's actually the getting dates you use the radioactive isotopes stable isotopes just tell you about various aspects of their uh ecology and life histories actually the primary source of my stable isotope data for my dissertation at least for the fossil component were uh, coprolites which are fossilized feces. Nice. <laughs> of course, I, I I do love the the jargon phrase for a lot of these things. The coprolite literally means um, poop rock. So Nancy, did you know what coprolite was? No, I mean who would know that? Uh, Ryan knows it. Like two people in the world. 
<laughs> well, uh, I, I found I found learning about Copperlite fascinating, uh, but I was really interested. So, what do you picture now when you think of sloth? Like, if I say picture a sloth, what are you picturing? <laughs> Those like. I feel like there's sloths, like people have them, like they're a funny thing, right? Like my friend has one, like a big one that she puts like in the back of her van and it's like waving at people. Do you know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, yeah, like the the things that stick on the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like people use them like in a funny way now. Yeah, sloths are really having kind of a moment, I feel like, in pop culture. And I feel like at a, at a zoo or something, um, if you see a sloth, people will put out egg crates and they'll curl up into a small little thing. So sloths, they're, they're not huge. Um... But the sloth that Ryan studied and potentially were the inspiration for some of these legends were very, very different from that. When thinking about you and your work, I'm really fascinated by this idea that prehistoric sloths, who, for the record, are much larger and much different than the sloths we have today, correct? Yeah, so we're living at a weird time for sloths, is something I like to say, because <laughs> Um, sloths are as small and undiversified and geographically restricted as they've basically ever been. Um, the fossil history of sloth is, is one of great success. They evolved in South America and then spread all over that continent. And then as soon as that continent, actually before that continent was even connected to, uh, North America via the Panamanian Isthmus, they had distributed over the shallow sea into North America and all throughout the Caribbean and lived as far north as Alaska, the Yukon Territory of Canada, um, oh, wow. up in the mountains of Colorado. Like, they were everywhere. Oh, okay. So, all right. So, much more diverse and in many cases, or at least in some cases, larger. Uh, Every case but, larger. The, the, ones okay. today, the ones today really are as small as they've ever been. Oh, okay. Um, the, yeah, and, and uh, they got as big as a modern elephant, but walking around on two legs because we have fossil wild. trackways. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, then that, that that leads into kind of this this next point that there's, well, you can explain this more, but potential that um, our modern, again, mythology is not the right word, um, cryptobiology, cryptozoology, I guess, yeah. around things like Sasquatch and Yeti and all of the different uh, names we have, Bigfoot, uh, they may have been ex inspired in part by prehistoric sloths right or maybe yeah it gets a little complicated and um part of it is cryptozoology has this really weird relationship with paleontology um because there's a t so cryptozoologists are people who look for animals that according to science you know air scare quotes on yeah scare quotes <laughs> on science don't exist and sometimes the reason that they're claimed to not exist is because uh, other types of scientists, biologists and paleontologists say that they're extinct. So if you think about like mega megalodon, the shark, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most scientists say that's extinct. Cryptozoologists say, well, maybe it's not. Let's go look for it. Um, so those kinds of animals are referred to as cryptids. Um, okay. And there's Bigfoot is a cryptid and Bigfoot is not necessarily based on an animal that we know existed. Um, and a lot of people will turn to giant apes that lived in Asia, like Antipithecus, is the okay. extinct genus of giant apes, similar to like a, a really large orangutan. And um, Bigfoot doesn't, that's sort of the claim, but like there's no fossil evidence of that. And so it doesn't really hold a lot of water to me. And I'll just go ahead and say, I don't put 
a ton of stock in the modern conception of Bigfoot as this animal that is still existing out in the Pacific Northwest that's being seen and heard and, and interacting with people. And um, pictures in a fuzzy way. Right, yeah, I love the Mitch, <laughs> the Mitch, Mitch Hepburn joke. Like, maybe Bigfoot is fuzzy, that's the problem. There's <laughs> a large, out-of-focus monster. <laughs> um, uh, but I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, the initial stories of this animal came from First Nations peoples. Mm-hmm. And um, and First Nations is the term that often gets used in Canada. And since they kind of crossed the border, it's just a catch-all term that I use as well, just to be as respectful as possible. And, and these people still exist. And so it, it isn't really fair to say that it's strictly a legendary claim because if, if you know these people still exist and these beliefs may still exist and i don't want to uh, denigrate that at all mm-hmm. and so when um the the white people in this region were first collecting these stories it was offensive to to the the first nations people to say that these stories were legendary of these these forest people living out in the forest away from humanity um and so i think you know that's fair enough sure. and uh Different groups obviously had different names for the race of beings that they said lived out in the forest or up in the mountains. But the term Sasquatch was borrowed from the uh, Halkomeon language, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that. And that's sort of become the default term when we refer, refer to more of the, the tribal First Nations concept of this animal. Sure. All right. And so my my sort of take on the whole thing is, and I've been a fan of cryptozoology since before I was even a paleontologist. I think my love of like undiscovered animals came both from like what's out in the forest and what's under the ground as a fossil. Like I, I kind of come at it from both directions. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I have this deep fascination with all this stuff from when I was a kid and I don't necessarily believe any of it now, but I'm still fascinated by it. And so my view is I don't think, there's a Bigfoot out there today. I've not seen any good evidence uh, of that being the case, but I do want to take the stories at face value and think about the reality of that and then work sort of from that perspective. Nancy. Yeah. Do you think that Bigfoot exists? No. <laughs> that was very quick. Not like there's not just no possibility, not even inkling. Nope. <laughs> I, I appreciate your, uh, um, your certainty in this, I, I have to say, I'm I'm probably on the no spectrum as well. Um, but there's been s- some some actual scientific evidence to back up your assertion. So this paper came out a little while ago, where these ecologists wanted to show that if you just look at like self-reported occurrence data where people say they saw an animal, you can create an ecological niche model for an animal that doesn't exist. So they did that for a Bigfoot. And um, so like, cause there, there are databases out there where people say like, I was camping and I heard, you know, I heard the, the call or I, I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I saw the footprint. So all these databases of evidence and you can use that to build a pretty convincing model of what's the prime Bigfoot habitat. And that's what they okay. did. And then once they built it, they were like, this looks familiar. And they realized that they had just made a pretty convincing plot of where black bears live. <laughs> Which is not terribly surprising when you think about it, because sure. like we've got a large fuzzy animal that can move around on two legs, however awkwardly. And I think, you know, you, you work with students and you do ecology, like it takes a lot of time in the forest and a lot of expertise to be good at identifying things, especially things you only see briefly and that you're not super familiar with. Right. Sure. So I think a lot of Bigfoot sightings today are probably coming from people just not being as familiar with bears as, as they ought to be, because I think bears are great. And I started thinking about like, how does that work 11, 10,000 years ago when people were coming across the Bering Land Bridge into North America for the first time? And I'm thinking, okay, 
they're probably not going to be super surprised by a bear. Bears live in Asia. That's an animal that they would have been familiar with. Right. But we do have fossils showing that one particular type of ground sloth called megalonyx, which means great claw, which was a very large animal, uh, easily, you know, maybe grizzly bear sized uh, oh, wow. at, its, okay. at its biggest, um, you know, about 10 feet, maybe a couple thousand pounds, 2000 pounds or so. Um, it, that is an animal that is only found in the Americas, right? It's only in North and South America. And Megalonyx is an iconically North American sloth. It's the one that's found. It was the first one found in the caves of what is now West Virginia, what was then Western Virginia. Uh, we find them in the La Brea Tar Pits. We find them up on mountains in Colorado. This sloth just got everywhere. So okay. that's the sloth that's up in uh, Alaska and the Yukon Territory. And it probably could move around on two legs as well. It was probably pretty shaggy. You know, modern sloths are pretty shaggy. And mm -hmm. in those cave deposits where we have uh, the coprolites, we also get fur fossils. And so we know that the ground sloths were also shaggy. Mm. Um, and, and so to me, it makes, at least it, it connects logically that this is an animal that they wouldn't have been immediately familiar with coming over from Asia and, shares some of the same characteristics that we think of as uh, the Sasquatch sharing. Is there evidence of them coexisting? Of, oh, that's of a great question. Early sloths and early um, human ancestors, essentially. There is surprisingly little evidence of that. Okay. Um, we don't see a ton of sloths in cave art, uh, which okay. is kind of interesting. We don't have a very... Con there's not a ton of convincing evidence of like butchery sites where bones are, are cut with tools to that we can then infer hunting occurred. Um, there's a very recently discovered fossil site in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, that is a footprint of a Nothertheriops sloth, which is this iconic Southwestern American sloth. Uh, and then there's a human footprint inside that footprint. And, oh. and footprint fossils have to occur pretty quickly together. Sure. Um, it's not a, a thing where like it could have been a, a couple of days or even, a, you know, it would have been within hours. Right. Okay. And so one possibility is that the humans were stalking this sloth. Um, but that's, again, it's still a little bit circumstantial, but we do know that they overlapped. And uh, there's a lot of debate in the paleontological community about like, why did these animals go extinct? You know, they went extinct at the same time. All these other giant American taxa, the, the saber toothed cats and the mammoths uh, all went extinct. And so the debate is, was it the end of the last ice age and this period of great climate change, or was it hunting pressure from humans, or was it a combination of both? Um, it's, it's harder to figure that out on a continent scale, mm -hmm. but in the Caribbean, there were also ground sloths that lived in the Caribbean, and those sloths actually survived up until about four, four and a half thousand years ago, pretty recently. Like okay. the Great Pyramids in Giza were finished. And there were yeah. still ground sloths walking around. That's wild. <laughs> and and they go extinct almost exactly when humans first arrive on those islands. So like the case uh, on the islands is pretty cut and dry, but islands work a little bit differently. But we do know that that humans and sloths overlapped, interacted to some extent. Uh, that the extent of those interactions is is up for some debate. What's the most? Do you know what the most um the most recent fossil is like date wise for any any species of giant sloth? Well, uh, we so we have fossils from the Caribbean that are you know as recent as right. that that four and a half thousand year mark. Generally, in paleontology, we have sort of a soft cutoff at around ten thousand years. So anything okay. younger than ten thousand year, we might call a subfossil. So it has to reach that ten thousand year mark to really be considered a part of the the fossil record. Truly, okay. um, it's not a hard and fast rule, but that's sort of how we work. 
when Ryan and I were talking, uh, we were very cognizant that much of what we were talking about are is North American centric and coming at it from a strictly scientific point of view. But these myths and legends are global and rooted in a lot of cultures that are not ours. One other uh, interesting part of this story, and again, it's something that because of my own limitations as a researcher, I haven't been able to dig into very much, is there is a sort of South American component to this called a Mapinguari. And again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it is a, a folkloric entity said to mm -hmm. live in the Amazon Amazonian rainforest that is sort of a large hairy smelly and it's all it's weird that they're always a smell associated with it like I've been around a lot right. of modern sloths modern sloths actually don't smell they smell better than a lot of other wild animals I've worked with huh. just because not smelling like anything is another defense mechanism when you don't want to be eaten sure. and a lot of times they got algae growing on them so they got kind of like an algae smell not like a weird animal they don't have like an animalistic musk or funk like we think of with a lot of mm -hmm. other mammals um so I, I think I think a lot of the information on the Mapinguari is very limited in English. And maybe right. if I spoke Portuguese, like my Spanish is pretty good, but I, I don't really speak Portuguese and I obviously don't speak any of the many languages that are spoken throughout the Amazon by the peoples who live there. Um, but it is sort of said to be this large, lumbering, hairy entity. And the thing that gets really wild with the Mapinguari is it's said to have a stomach or a mouth on its stomach. So it just shovels food right into its oh. stomach, which is kind of crazy. But there are people that, that say that, it, that, that, you know, have noticed that it maybe shares some characteristics with ground sloths. Um, the information in English just isn't out, out there for me to do much with that, though. Well, Nancy, what uh, have you enjoyed your time learning about mermaids and giant sloths? And yes, very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a unique episode. Uh, and we don't necessarily talk about we don't get a lot of biology in, I feel, our episodes, which is well, fine. We do from time but, to time. You know, but yeah, I'm, but I'm yeah. excited for this. And uh, just a reminder, this is uh, the first in a two-part series. So we'll have another one of these coming out. Uh, Excellent. For now, uh, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Shane, for bringing us uh, this story. And of course, to Christina and Ryan for sharing their work with us. This podcast was produced and mixed by me. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review us. Um, and you can find uh, new episodes wherever um, you get your podcast or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. And as Shane alluded to, be on the lookout for part two of our Monsters and Myths series that will drop in a few days. All right. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time. What are you doing? I'm trying to make... Oh, there you go. Okay. I pinned ya. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm learning to use Squidcast. Squidcast? Isn't that what it's called? Squadcast. Squidcast. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's amazing. Oh. That, I thought it was Squidcast this whole time. That I guess brings I've, me so much I've joy. I've like never looked closely Squidcast. enough at the link. Squidcast.